friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christiane. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. We are thrilled to have Carrie Gress with us. She's an old friend of the show. She's one of the beautiful minds behind Theology of Home. And they are out with a new edition called Theology of Home at the Sea. These are beautiful books for perusing and for coffee tables, for sharing with friends. She, Carrie has a PhD in philosophy and she joins us with a sneak peek at her new book as we are rounding out the summer months. But first, we talk with a good friend and pro-life champion in the Latin American community. She is attorney Nady Casillas, who serves as vice president for international affairs at the Global Center for Human Rights. Previously, Casillas served as a senior legal counsel at ADF International and spearheaded advocacy efforts with the United Nations in New York. She defended the sanctity of life, marriage, and family. Welcome to the show, Nady. Hello, Gracie. Thank you so much for having me. Nady, I'm going to have to be very careful uh, while we talk not to veer into Spanish, which is the language we usually share together. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. I wanted to have you on because here in the United States, it's very it's very easy to um, forget that there's a whole world outside the United States. And and also it's a world that is very heavily impacted by the culture of the United States, some of which culture we import, right? And a kind of cultural imperialism. Um, And in many ways, it's a it's it's a it's a very damaging fact, especially in countries of Latin America, which are, you know, filled with populations that are much more vulnerable. There's a lot more poverty, a lot of a lot more unrest and corruption. So places that. you know what they say when we when 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 we have a cold in the United States, everyone else gets pneumonia, right? In, the, in different parts yeah, of the world. True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is so true, yeah. So you're an expert. You're an expert in this in 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 the Latin American world of of, of pro life and pro family, pro marriage, and so I wanted to talk to you about your work in general, and then again very specifically about a certain case that you're working on that is that is very important. So tell us about your work in Latin America. Um, how how is it different from being pro life and pro marriage in the United States? Well, actually, um, well. You know, uh, and, and, and because we share uh, and we uh, the same background, Gracie, uh, we both are Latinas. Um, so you may know that in Latin America, people's values values are still very for life and for family. Like there is something about uh, our culture that is just like natural on us to to support life and and, and family. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the latest years, um, we have uh, had the the attack of the of the left, especially the the pro abortion movement that is investing uh, tons of money to change that culture. And unfortunately, they have been successful. Uh, somehow, still, I guess um, the goals that uh, they supposedly should 
achieve by this time are not uh, even close to actually achieve it. And that's why, well, they are like uh, trying different ways to, to expand that agenda. And one of those ways is the international organizations. When I say international organizations, I refer to the United Nations and the Organization of American States. These two institutions are like, uh, I always tell people, it's like a Congress, it's a political forum where law is created. And, uh, and that law is going to have an impact in national law. So because the left has realized like the importance and in, in the um, reach that these institutions can have, well, they have taken a different ap- approach and uh, they have come to these institutions to try to expand this abortion agenda because they know that if they go to the countries and they try to pass an abortion law through the legislative, it's not going to work. So in that sense, it's very similar to what it is happening here in the States, in some of the states, right? In, in Ultimately, is that it was a, the court decision in the case of Dobbs, that uh, it is for people to decide what kind of laws they want to have for the state. It is the same thing in, in Latin America. No, That that should be the, the principle that these international organizations should respect. It is up to the countries, not the states, but the countries who that are um, sovereign, uh, that they should uh, decide what kind of laws uh, they want to have for their people. But give us a thumbnail sketch where, in general, countries uh, in Latin America fall on this spectrum of being pro-life or pro-choice and also pro-family or uh, pro-normal, traditional understanding of male and female, uh, just to name okay. a couple things. Sure. Yes. Well, most of the countries, I would say, that are conservative. If you go to the outside the, the capitals, um, uh, you will find that the people is very, very uh, pro-life and pro-family. And I think that that it is very related uh, to their religion. Like, our cultures were founded uh, on Christian values. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, you can see and you can perceive that in people. So, unfortunately, um, it is, you know, like uh, decision makers that the ones who are deciding for all these people. And most of the time, uh, as you may know, Gracie, unfortunately, we don't have the culture in getting involved in politics. We thought, uh, or we used to thought that uh, politics uh, were not meant uh, for us, that that was something for, um, in Latin in Latin America, at least, it was for people that it is corrupted, people that it is, um, that they just want to, you know, take advantage of others, that they want to make money, etc. So uh, many of us stay away of uh, that environment. And because we stay away, uh, the left took over, and now we have a, a different situation. So the, uh, um, when it, it comes to the laws, I would say, that uh, Uruguay is the most liberal country in the region. Hmm. They have legalized everything, abortion, same-sex marriage. They have legalized even the hormonalization for children. They have everything legalized, drugs, everything. And when you say legalized abortion, um, like crazy, crazy legalized abortion, like Vermont and New York, like 40 weeks or or, or more reasonable, like, like most people in Europe, most states in Europe? Yes, no, are more reasonable that they are most uh, like Europe, pretty much same same case that that Europe. Like they there is some limitations, mm-hmm. uh, particularly uh, for Uruguay. Uh, you can it is still bad and very bad, but it, it has a limit up to the uh, three months. Um, so it's not completely uh, legalized, but mm-hmm. it's still like uh, because the rest of the region, um, most of the, the countries, uh, the abortion is. Uh, decriminalized just in the train 
three main uh, circumstances. So the risk of the health of the mother in case of rape and sometimes in case of malformation of the baby. Mm -hmm. um, those are the three um, main um, circumstances in which uh, abortion is criminalized in most of the states. There is another uh, a country that it is very surprising, Gracie, and not many people know that it is Colombia. Colombia has also very liberal, no laws, but it is the court. It's been through the court that in the judicial activism that it is happening within the court of Colombia that they have uh, legalized abortion. They have legalized euthanasia for children, which you know, is very surprising. I was going to say yeah. that. I happen to know that in Colombia, the euthanasia movement is tremendously powerful and they've yeah. legalized. I don't know why I find that so shocking. I My experience of, of Hispanic culture is one in which the you know the the elderly and the people in the family that need extra help are are more embraced than the united than in oh, the yeah. united states yes yeah yeah in general that that's true um i think that um uh, this is not something that uh, people demand you know like this is something that as i said uh, the, the judicial judicial activism that it is happening within the court uh, is the reason why it is uh, they uh, or Colombia has uh, euthanasia law, um, and unfortunately, again, as I said before, because we don't have the culture on getting involved in politics, uh, then these courts have been, you know, like free to do as they want, and uh, not many people is standing up against them. So, Nady, when we start, when you started talking to us about the the situation, you mentioned the UN and the Organization of American States and how powerful those organizations are over what happens in each um, country in in Latin America. Why is it so powerful? How does how does the the decision of the Organization of American States in reference to something like euthanasia or abortion get translated into law in each, in the different countries? So, okay, I'm going to try to now become very technical because I know that <laughs> <laughs> not many people as is, is uh, lawyers, but um, I'm going to try to keep it simple. But as I said before, uh, when you think about the UN and the OES, you should think about a Congress. It, it functions the same way. They have different commissions in which um, instead of laws, they, it is called resolutions are created. And these resolutions, uh, it is where countries uh, have an agreement on certain issues that they should like be working on. Um, nevertheless, and this is very important, when countries uh, join these organizations, they have to sign like a, tr a treaty, not like a treaty, which uh, it is like the constitution, the equal of the constitution to, of, a, of a, a country. Why? Because countries, they are. They have their own. They have the right to have their own laws. They are. Uh, they are sovereignty nations, and therefore, um, they have to have very clear what they are signing into. So these treaties uh, that uh, created were created within the UN and the OES are actually, especially the one in the UN. Those treaties protect life. In the case of the OES, since the moment of conception, it is very specific, the treaty. The treaty is called the American Convention on Human Rights. And it is very specific that the life is protected since the moment of conception. It's not that specific, uh, the treaty that exists within the UN, but still, it says life, it is a human right, right? That it should be protected for all the states. So that is what the countries sign into, and that is what they agree. But as I said, again, we as a pro-life movement and pro-conservative movement, we don't pay much attention to these institutions. And the left did. 
So the left has been, just to give you an idea, uh, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood has been engaging with the UN work since uh, 1972. So even before Roberts Wade was passed, <laughs> they they were engaged at the UN. Why? Because they knew that if they were um, advocating for their issues within these institutions, they will reach the 190 three nations that are part of this organization as one. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the OES. So they knew that, or they know that engaging with the OES, they will reach and they will impact 35 countries that are part of this organization at once. Now, at the Organization of American States, it is a very special case because unlike the UN, the Organization of American States has a quasi-judicial system, like kind of, it is political, but it is also judicial. So it has a court, the International Court, uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And this court has jurisdiction over 20 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. So what it means that the court can decide over these countries. Now, something, and again, just to be very clear, the court has to abide to what countries agree in the treaty. In that treaty, again, it is completely pro-life. But, but just as it happens here in the States, the court did a completely, or, or not even interpretation, because there is no way that they can interpret uh, where it says life that there is a right to abortion, right? It is completely contrary. Uh, but what uh, what they have been doing is like misinterpreting or creating new rights and imposing these new rights or try attempting to impose these new rights to the nations. So the, le the left has been very smart. They know that they have been fighting for many, many years, trying to pass laws to legalize abortion, to legalize same-sex marriage, to legalize um, the gender identity stuff, everything else, and they have not been that successful. They have had some achievements, but still, they haven't succeeded like as they planned. And that's why they have come to these uh, organizations. Because and and, and Nadi, let me ask you about uh, cultural imperialism. How much of this is the United States imposing its uh, its its twisted culture on Latin America? Thank you so much for asking, Gracie, because that is why actually my organization, which is Global Center for Human Rights, is based here in Washington, D.C. Because the U.S., it is actually the one, one of the countries that it is promoting this imperialism uh, among the, the region. It is or taxes, because I said ors because I also live in the U.S. And, and I pay taxes. So it is with our taxes that they are trying to impose this agenda upon these countries. And just to like, uh, so uh, um, just uh, let me step back for very briefly, just to explain that uh, part of the work that we do within my, uh, uh, within my organization is to advocate for life and family not just at these international institutions, but also here at the at the U.S. and, and among Latin America. And uh, we have found that uh, a, a many times, most of the times, one of the issues when there is a visit from the current administration to one of our countries, one of the uh, issues that they want to, to uh, talk about and that they put pressure on the presidents or the, the governments that they visit, it is related with the LGBT and abortion stuff. So we have like hear this from uh, firsthand from, you know, like these people who has been pressured by the uh, by this administration to try to pass these kind of laws, even though they know that to, uh, the, the, the people within that country does not want it. 
even though they know that the constitution does it is uh, against the constitution of the country etc so unfortunately the us is is doing a huge a huge damage uh, among the region and you know it's interesting it's interesting because the left which is in power now in the united states and, and yes. in the federal government um it, it's interesting because the left also has a really strong um, reaction against cultural um, appropriation, as they call it, right? Like they, they're exactly, all, yes. it's all about respecting other people's diversity and their, and their beautiful selves. Um, but then they turn around and act completely different. So what, why, how do they, how do they balance out that, that logical uh, connection in their heads, do you think? Well, actually, I think that to me, it sounds more like a hypocrisy rather than, you know, <laughs> you know like I had experienced myself crazy when I, when uh, the day that uh, Dobbs was, um, the decision of Dobbs uh, was announced, I was outside of the, the Supreme Court uh, waiting for the decision. And um, me and my husband, we have, um, we recently got married like two years and a half ago, and we have not conceived yet. We pray for it. Uh, but we still have not conceived. And when I was there, I found a sign. It wasn't mine, but uh, there was a group of young people next to us. And I told them if I could hold a sign. And there was a sign that uh, I think that it was like something that got put uh, on my way. Uh, that said, uh, I will adopt your baby. <laughs> so uh, me and my husband were like hanging, like, you know, like holding that sign. And many people had like the same expressions or reaction that you just did, you know, like they were like so, you know, happy and, and you know, like just congratulating us for like the generosity and everything else because we actually have uh, like uh, talk about adopting a baby. And so anyways, a friend of mine uh, posted this uh picture of us on the on twitter and it just start to have such a positive uh, reactions even from people that does not agree completely with with the pro-life movement that the left immediately uh jump in and they start to create a whole campaign a campaign uh, against us so i'm saying this because uh, you can see like the hypocrisy of this movement mm -hmm. i'm latina I'm brown, <laughs> I'm women. I, everything that they said, they defend. And at the end of the day, just because I do not believe uh, what they do, I was attacked, you know, like they start to laugh about not even my ideas, which is uh, the worst, you know, like uh, uh, I guess we can disagree uh, on our ideas, but we always should respect each other. Nevertheless, they, they because they do not have argument and especially uh, with the argument of adoption, they, they don't have any any uh, we we that we it was like uh we left them uh, unarmed and then uh they start to uh, attack us personally you know like to make fun of us to make fun well all this just to say uh, and just to show the hypocrisy of this movement and i think that it is exactly the same for everything they said that they defend something but that that's just when you agree with their their agenda, as soon as you disagree with them, then you will be even subject of attack. You know what makes me very angry about the left's uh, cultural, th the cultural attacks that the left has on, on Latin America and Latin American people, Hispanic people, but also, you know, minority people here in the United States, poor people, people who live in the lower middle yes. class or in poverty, mm -hmm. is that the, the, the more vulnerable you are, the more, the closer you live to the poverty level or under the poverty level, the, the more you need need the things in life which we know keep you stable and keep you flourishing and they're they're there for you when the government's not there for you they're there for you when when poverty is at the door 
um, which is yes. family, which is marriage, which are children. I mean, children, I grew up in the, in the third world. <laughs> I visit it mm -hmm. all the time. I go to the developing world. I was just in Ecuador a couple weeks ago, uh, up in the mountains where people, you know, live a subsistence existence. Uh -huh. And the best thing you can give yourself is a child. It, of course. A child, mm -hmm. a marriage, a child, a family. That's what's going to feed you when you're old and make sure that yeah. some, that you're covered up against the cold and, and that there's a, your, your, the, the roof in your hole. Someone comes to patch the roof in your hole. Your grandchild comes. <laughs> um, exactly. These are all such simple, basic things. But the left, uh, with their cultural bulldozer, they're bulldozing from the from the perspective of the very comfortable, developed society where people, they feel so confident of the future of the government taking care of them and being there for everything. And there's always a credit card you can max out that they're willing to take all the comforts of life away from the poor and the marginalized. Yes, that's so true. Uh, we always try to um, like bring those issues to the table crazy because we, as I mean, I moved to the States just to do this job like uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I know our reality for, you know, firsthand, you know, I, I actually, when I was in Mexico, I created a center in which we were trying to help women that were in a poverty situation to overcome their situation by teaching them how to do like some kind of job that they can like, you know, uh, do from their homes so they can take care of their children, but at the same time to like have um, some kind of uh, income so they can provide for the family. And what we see, unfortunately, within these organizations, and I guess it happens uh, with all the governments, and especially nowadays with this uh, leftist agenda, is that uh, the whole attention is to abortion, LGBT stuff, gender, gender ideology, all this. It seems that this is a priority. And it that's such a lie because in our countries, what people need it's actually completely different. If you go to the poorest area in Mexico, in Argentina, in Colombia, women, they want to have their children. The thing is that they don't have the means to provide for them. So what we should be, and that is what we try to highlight all the time, what we should be doing is discussing how to overcome poverty, how to really bring education to uh, everyone, you know, to have access to education for children, for women, for everyone else. It's so wonderful to hear these things from you, Nady, to give us this from, you know, to give our listeners in the United States a, a better, uh, I think, a, a more complete idea of, of how the United States operates, the, the cultural left in the United States operates on, on, on the world stage. Um, but you're involved, uh, and I don't want to run out of time before we, before we talk about it. You're involved in a very interesting case right now in El Salvador and in one of these, um, in one of these courts that is going to have uh, tremendous implications for the state of being pro-life in, in Latin America. So tell us about it. So the case is called uh, Beatriz against El Salvador. So Beatriz, it is, uh, oh, it was a woman, unfortunately she died, but uh, I'm going to tell you why. She, uh, she was a woman that uh, was pregnant. She was with lupus and uh, her baby was an encephalic. It wasn't something very interesting is that it wasn't her first uh, pregnancy. She had a baby before with lupus as well and of course her pregnancy was um you know like difficult but it's still like her health everything was fine she actually didn't want to have any kind of a sterilization because she wanted to keep uh, having baby nevertheless and again the hypocrisy of the left they found beatrice and in the case it was like very interesting for them because it, it just fit the purpose of their agenda so they convinced beatrice that she will die if she didn't have an abortion abortion in El Salvador 
is not legalized. The only circumstance in which you can access to abortion is when the the, the health of the of the mother is at risk. So they, they convinced her that she will die if she didn't have an abortion. Beatrice, of course, and no, it was not her thought, but these groups, they took her case and they tried to uh, get her an abo- abortion. The doctors agreed that uh, her health was not at risk, that she was fine, that um, uh, basically what she need it is just medical attention and of course to have a close um you know a, a attention of or because of course uh, it was high risk pregnancy but she was doing fine finally uh, beatrice had the baby she uh, was discharged within a week uh, after having the baby in a perfect shape, of course, with her lupus, but uh, she was fine. The baby, unfortunately, died after five hours because she was an encephalic. It was a girl. Uh, the pro-life movement brought this case to the Inter-American Court. Why? Because it is taken by the left. And it is founded by many of the organizations that are based here in the U.S. that are supported with U.S. taxes. So they um, brought this case to the court in the court. Uh, well, it is it is right now in the in uh, the court. But the purpose of uh, of these organizations and the court it is working with them. Uh, they are trying to expand or to create a right of abortion in the whole region. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, this court has jurisdiction over 20 countries. So. Everything that happens with this court is going to have an impact within those nations and even other countries because the court has said that because they uh, protect human rights, all the countries that are part of the Organization of American States and they said that they protect human rights, they should uh, uh, um, comply what with the court says. So... So, so do they do they do they hold that um, Beatrice should have had a, been allowed to have an abortion because she had lupus or or because the baby was an encephalic or both? She, because the baby was an encephalic and her 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 uh, health was at risk. That that is what the the left argued that she she was denied uh, this abortion even though this pregnancy was threatened uh, her health and her life which none of that, it is true. Like her health was stable and uh, was not even, uh, doctors decided that was not even good for her health to uh, put it in a, you know, in a race of having an abortion. And her life was never threatened by the, by their pregnancy. So everything was alive. So it's, it's, a, still- it's a case that sort of holds a lot of good things for the left in order to promote their narrative, but it doesn't hold it's- up. Uh, as far as any logical reason to have had to end the pregnancy, how can they follow along in this really interesting case of Beatrice versus Salvador? El Salvador. So, well, you can you can follow us at the, uh, our website. It is uh, globalcenterforhumanrights.org. Well, thank you very much, Nadi. It was delightful talking to you, and and God bless your work, and 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 I hope that God sends you a baby through adoption it's or big. biologically, <laughs> however however He decides. Thank you so much, Gracie, and thank you everyone. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie from the Catholic Association. We are thrilled to have Carrie Gress with us. She's an old friend of the show. She's one of the beautiful minds behind Theology of Home. And they are out with a new edition called 
Theology of Home at the Sea. These are beautiful books for perusing and for coffee tables, for sharing with friends. Carrie has a PhD in philosophy and she joins us with a sneak peek at her new book as we are rounding out the summer months. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Carrie, today. you you we love to hear about theology of the home on Conversations with Consequences. And we had to have you on because you have a new installment of Theology of the Home, and it's called At the Sea. I do, yes. Um, Theology of Home 3, At the Sea, is what we just released. And it's a little bit different format than the previous books. We were actually just focused on a, a main theme instead of really digging into the elements of home or homemaking or whatnot. So anyway, it was just, it's been a really fun project to work on. Now remind our listeners, what is theology of the home? What's the idea, your, your motivating foundational idea there? Yeah. Theology of home is really based on this idea that our homes are meant to be a foretaste of heaven, that we are, um, they're, they're a place where we become saints really. And, um, that's the purpose of them. Um, and what we really have tried to do with these is help women understand um, those essential principles, but also help us understand ourselves as, as women. Um, it feels like there's been just a huge loss of what it means to be a woman in the culture today. And so we're trying to provide women with both a visual as well as mental kind of grammar for, you know, understanding of ourselves as women and how do we think through that and talk through that and, and speak about it in ways that, that make sense and that are compelling um, as opposed to what we are getting in the culture, which of course is, is really erasing women. Um, Carrie, when, when I think about, and I think a lot of people are this, are this way too, when I think about my home being, um, a breeding ground for saints, right? Like for me and my husband and the children and whoever happens to be coming in and out of our home. Um, I, I tend to I tend to focus on inter, the interpersonal relationships at home, like how we treat each other, the courtesy with which we treat each other, the, the, the love which we bear each other, the peace that is in our home. But in theology of the home, um, you open up a whole other a whole other way, you know, a whole other section uh, of this making your home a breeding ground for saints, which is in the, the visual aspect of the home, the way the home affects you in its order and in its and, and, and its visual beauty. Why is, do you think that that's why do we tend to not put so much emphasis on that in our heads when we think about the, <laughs> the importance of the home? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, and one of the reasons we got into this was just recognizing how important the home is for really everybody um, and how much women are spending in particular on their homes. It's, you know, it's billions of dollars goes into this industry. And for us, it wasn't really a question of just vanity. Obviously, there are people that are doing these things for vain, vanity or to you know, keep up with the Joneses or whatnot. Um, but we know that the home is is really important and vital um, for our life as a family and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think your articulation is great and super important and all those elements of, of working on relationships and, and peace and hospitality and all of that goes into it. Um, but it's also there's some some practical elements that can go into it. And, you know, these are things that don't have to be expensive. It's, you know, basic things like bringing order to a home or, you know, in my case, getting rid of the piles or um, whatnot. And um, so those things can can speak volumes, I think, in a home that where where all of these other elements are really nurtured the elements that you mentioned um, to people that come in from the outside, that they're going to pick up on that, even if it's not a home that's 
you know elegantly laid out it it, it still is going to speak volumes to what the home what the people in the home love and value and think is important and, and that gets conveyed to the guest and, and what does it do for us who live in our home what is what is the appearance of our home the order of our home do for us spiritually well i, I mean i think there's certainly that element of um you know, order is, is brings harmony. It's, you know, this is one of these great elements of what beauty is. Order is a, is a part of that symmetry. Um, so there's a, that piece, but certainly it also has a lot to do with what, what we fill our homes up with. Um, you know, there's going to be a big difference between a beautiful piece of art versus, you know, a poster for, that you got when you were in your eight, in the 1980s or something, you know, <laughs> um, very distinct things are going to be evoked in a soul that's, that sees those things day in and day out. Um, there's a great story about, you know, in history that the, the Russians always had an icon in their homes. And um, when the communists came in, they didn't know where to look in the homes because you always reverenced the icon when you came in. Um, but they always saw everybody looking at the clock. So they started looking at the clocks and reverencing a clock. Um, so wow. anyway, I think it's those kinds of transitions that have taken place in our modern culture that, you know, we've replaced an icon with a clock. Um, and that tells us a lot about modernity and where our focus is and productivity and whatnot and, and how we've moved away from the spiritual. Um, so it can be very simple things like um selecting a, a beautiful icon and there's plenty of them that are not incredibly expensive anymore that can be purchased in places like etsy um that we can put on our home that you know you see when you come in the home or leave the home or, or whatnot so there's a lot of really simple ways that we can make our home feel a lot more like a sanctuary um when we start thinking about it i think more deeply you connected it uh this theology of home you connected it to our womanhood what's the connection there yeah, well, I mean, the reality is, is homes don't make themselves, and um, there has to be a homemaker. And of course, that term has been very out of vogue for a long time. And actually, I'm, I'm researching a new book right now and just really digging into the roots of how it actually came from um, the Soviets. It was really the Soviets that said that the home was no longer important. And we've really absorbed this dramatically over the last 50, 60 years and not really realized that, it, you know, we've got these um, communist dictates that have come down to us and are, are, have become very popular and that we've really latched onto. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's um, that it's very much tied to women because, of course, w women are the first home for their children um, biologically. And I, I think in a lot of ways, our homes reflect us to, to a certain extent, um, our characters and personalities and, and um, the different attributes that we have. Um, so, yeah, I think our, our the home is just incredibly important for understanding woman. That's not to say that men don't help out in it, but this is, you know, we're trying to balance things out a little bit because of course it's become so taboo to speak about women in the home um, and go back to this, this idea that, you know, all the things that people do in the home have become popular again. So when why don't you... we just be, mm -hmm. talk about, so why don't we just talk about homemaking again, instead of allowing this to be a communist taboo that we've, we've been living with. I love that connection to communism. I mean, who knows how many things we do because the communists taught us, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that is no, a, no. I mean, th that's, that's the one, that's one thing they do immediately is they wreck the family and the home mm -hmm. and that, Absolutely. that, that nucleus where the, where the, the family hearth, right? They, 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 they tear it apart um, exactly. so that the state can be everything. Mm -hmm. Um, you exactly. know, when you when you go into a man's house, a man who lives by himself, if, you know, maybe he's a dorm, uh, a boy in a dorm or a young man in a dorm, but or a man who goes by himself, you look at each other, you and your friends and you say, this, ho this house needs a woman's touch. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> right? Things are not looking, yeah. things might be orderly, they might be clean, but there's a harmony missing when a woman's not around. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think generally it is. I, but I can think of certainly designers who, you know, have, have incredible eyes as, as well. So, um, yeah, but there's there's a lot to be said for the woman's touch um, in so many ways. And uh, I think I'm one of those women that I'm not a great decorator. So I have a lot of um, admiration for women who are. I think it's just an amazing skill to be able to bring together things and style them and just make look amazing you know to take I could take the same objects and move them around all day long and not come up with something <laughs> near as beautiful as, as some of these women that I know so I I just admire it so much and I think that it really is a great gift that that we give our families when we can we can provide these things women also seem to have a, a greater uh, a greater source inside themselves of this desire to to go a little extra further in the home so for instance my husband and i always laugh about the number of pillows on beds right <laughs> and it's it's definitely on the on the on the x on the x chromosome you need two x's apparently to have more than three pillows on a bed because a man's like that's enough pillows and woman's like no we need more pillows to round them out and to make it symmetric <laughs> And men yes. are like, no, I don't want to go to bed and have to, you know, take off 12 pillows off my bed and then range them all back on in the morning. What, <laughs> what, what quality is that of women? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, um, we have the same hour here in my, my family as well. <laughs> so um, I certainly understand that. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those, you know, elements where just there, there's a sense that comes to a place, like you said earlier, um, where it feels like there's something harmonious and where it feels, even to the degree of talking about things like a sanctuary, um, you know, we love sort of that hotel effect. I mean, how many times do people say, you know, I want my, my main bedroom to feel like a hotel um, or the main bathroom, you know, all of that, I think. Um, master, master bathroom. Sense of being, <laughs> being pampered. Yes, the master bathroom. Um, but I think that... Um, yeah, it's really this desire to make our homes a sanctuary and to feel like attention and care and detail are, are really being attended to and to show that our, our love for others through that. We also have women that love to do that through their cooking, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are just amazing cooks. And, you know, you, they're in there slaving away and you think they're they're just working so hard and they're miserable. And then you see the delight on their face when, you know, their their loved ones are eating an amazing meal. Um, so, yes, it, it is a, that question of going the extra mile for those that we love and wanting to, to nourish them and um, help them, be, you know, be the people that God meant them to be by giving them this environment where they can grow so, you know, well and easily. Now, of course, those are not the only things that go into it, but those, I think, are really fundamental pieces of, in terms of, of raising a family and helping them um, understand order and harmony and whatnot. Some, in my experience, my I, I tend to go overboard when it comes to my house and my garden. Like I, I do, I worry about it too much and I think about it too much and, I, and I'm always trying to rein myself in and say, um, how much of this is me wanting to have the most, you know, peaceful and harmonious and lovely home for my family and how much is it just vanity, right? Like if yeah. I love, if I can have eight beautiful f- fruit trees in my garden, why can't I have 10, you know, or 12? <laughs> how far does this have right. to go? What do you think about that balance? You know, I think that balance is just going to be a, a piece of every woman's life. There's so many things between time and money and vanity and necessity and need um, that just really go into it. And I, I know I have that struggle myself. In fact, I've this summer I've uh, 
uh, employed my sons to take care of my garden for me because I just haven't had time for it. Otherwise, it probably would have all gone to seed. But um, it's, you know, those little ways in which we try to really balance things out and, um, you know, figure out what where the priorities are. And sometimes we're in seasons of life where the garden just can't be the focus. You know, mm-hmm. it's got to be something that we put down down the road. Um, other times we have the capacity to focus on something um, external like that, or maybe it feels more vital. Maybe it's something that that's where your prayer time is. So um, I think it just comes down to the to individual and just feeling like you're working within your means, um, whether it's time or money, and um, really focused on growing in virtue. And I think that, you know, there's nothing like a garden to, to show us how to to really raise children. Um, and that, that's just an important element that so many people, you know, are fed by and why I love even the fact that my own sons are beginning to understand that concept of nourishment. Carrie, tell us about your, the, the, the book, um, at the sea, what, what, why the sea, what's the connection of the sea to femininity, to our religion? Yeah, no. So that this third book, theology of home at the sea, um, has been, was just really a delight to work on. Um, the, the, the big thing was really thinking about the sea is obviously such a big and immense topic, something that we loved, but we thought, how do we how do we tackle this from a very feminine perspective, from a very womanly perspective? Because, of course, there's so much about the sea that's super masculine, you know, thinking about Moby Dick or um, the Master and Commander series or, you know, any of those this great literature that's, that has been written about navies and, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of things, um, wars and whatnot. Um, so we really wanted to press into how do we look at, at women from this perspective? And so obviously much of it has to do with recreation and, and, you know, those great memories that are made with families at the beach. Um, but there's also certain things like the nature of the sea that we have to respect that I think, you know, people like surfers and, and sailors respect the ocean. They understand the waves, they understand the danger, but we don't always think about that when we're, we're talking about women and the, the, the nature of womanhood. Um, you know, instead we're sort of polluting it with with different chemicals and trying to overcome the nature of womanhood instead of really working with the the human nature that God has created. So it was fun to look into that. It was also we took we brought brought in you know people like Penelope from um, the Odyssey. You know she's there's this very faithful woman who's waited for her husband some twenty odd years um, to return from from his Odyssey. And um, so we looked at that. We also talked to a woman um, that I know from Poland that her whole family was, they were all in, worked on the sea in one capacity or another. Um, so it was just really interesting to sort of dive into this from a woman's perspective, but also kind of get some more just insights into to womanhood through exploring this, this one theme. Well, these are delightful books, Carrie. Thank you for writing them and for making them so beautiful. They're, they're perfect coffee table items because when you have a, a guest and you you welcome them with hospitality in your beautiful, orderly, peaceful home, <laughs> which is a garden growing saints, um, then those are the beautiful books that people pick up on your coffee table and, and come away even more refreshed. So thank you. And where can our listeners find your books? Um, the, the, they can certainly go to theologyofhome.com and uh, purchase them there. I'm always happy to sign them for people. Um, or they can be bought on Amazon or Tan Books or any place that, that Catholic books are sold. And on your and on your website, is there more um, explanation and, and writing about theology of home? Yeah, no, absolutely. All of our books are there, but we also have a, a daily blog that we use a lot of the insights from Theology of Home to send out to readers on a daily basis. Um, we're, we're trying to help women really understand what it means to be women and to be faithful and to, to be homemakers. And um, even if 
being home isn't the only thing that you do, but it's an important element, I think, for all of us. What a wonderful project, Carrie. I can't think of anything more important right now, especially in the state of the world. We have to make our, our <laughs> homes as as just lovely as possible, the, the place where everybody wants to come back to. It's true. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Leonard, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will speak to us about the path to eternal life. On Monday, as you remember, we celebrated the solemnity of Mary's assumption, body and soul, into heaven. Son of God came into the world so that each of us might spend eternity, body and soul, in heaven alongside her. In the Sunday's Gospel, as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, teaching the multitudes along the way, a person from the crowd asks him, how many actually make it to heaven? Jesus' response is as relevant to us today as it was to his auditors two millennia ago. Lord, will only a few be saved, the person inquires. It seemed to be a question flowing from curiosity. Jesus, however, didn't come down from heaven to satisfy our curiosity. He came to save us, and so responded not by stating how many will be saved, but how that interlocutor and others will be saved. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, he says. A similar thing happened at another time when the disciples asked the Lord Jesus about the timing of the end of the world. Tell us when this will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. Jesus replied not by supplying information they could put into their calendars, but by telling them how to be ready no matter when it occurred. In both cases, Jesus was not being evasive. Rather, he went beyond trivia to what's most important, making us aware of what we need to do to know and to experience the salvation he's won for us. We can say almost as an aside that many in our world would do well to pay attention to what Jesus does not answer in this gospel. Jesus' failure to answer the question about the number of those to be saved shows the absurdity of groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses who want to claim that they know the exact amount who are saved, 144,000, taking literalistically symbolic number used in Revelations 14. It also shows the absurdity of many who found storefront churches and claim that they know for certain when the end of the world will be. Not only does Jesus not give us or them that information, but says in the, elsewhere in the gospel that not even he knows when that will occur. Only his Father does. Even more than paying attention to what Jesus in his answer doesn't say, however, we must pay attention to what he does. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. This word strive in Greek is the same word we have for agonize. It's used in a tense that means keep on agonizing points to the type of struggle and suffering Jesus says it'll take to enter into his kingdom. To be saved, to get to heaven, we need continuously to agonize, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, to conform our will to the Father's. We need to go into agony to make the greatest possible, most painful exertion of our life to fit through a gate that is narrow. We need to work harder than an undrafted free agent gives everything he's got in training camp to make the cut. Harder than the gymnast works to make the Olympics and win the gold. Harder than an immigrant father of a large family works to ensure his family's survival. The width of the narrow door to heaven is the span of a needle's eye. The girth of the cross. Something that's anything but easy to pass through. But what if we don't love the Lord that much? 
What if we really don't make an heroic effort? We might not get an A-plus in our discipleship, but we'll still make the cut, right? Listen to what Jesus says in St. Matthew's Gospel about the relative numbers heading toward life and toward perdition. The gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, he says, and there are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus doesn't tell us whether those on the wide, easy, congested highway to hell actually end up in Gehenna, whether those on the narrow, uphill road to life actually end up at his Father's right side. Jesus' whole mission and that of the church he founded, after all, is to try to rescue people from the former and bring them to the latter. But Jesus does tell us pretty clearly about the way the vast majority of people is trending. Over the last few decades, people have gotten the notion that the Christian life is exactly the opposite of what Jesus described, that salvation is cheap and easy, and that everyone gets to heaven, except perhaps genocidal serial killers, public smokers, and people we don't like. Such an attitude is a diabolical ambush. It's a lie from the father of lies, and also a very dangerous heresy, universalism, or as the early church called it, apocatastasis that carries with it potentially the most serious of eschatological consequences. He was the gate of the sheepfold tells us that we need to agonize to enter into him. Jesus said these words as he was on the road to Jerusalem, and we know what happened when he got there. He entered into his agony, the agony that led to our salvation, and opened up that narrow door. But we need to be willing to follow Jesus along that path of sacrificial love, and to admit that it's not a much-traveled path. We can ask... What's more popular today, the path of spiritual poverty announced by Jesus or the one of materialist wealth? The path of purity or pornography? The path of peacemaking or score settling? The path of turning the other cheek or slapping back? The path of keeping the commitments or breaking them? Jesus' path is not an easy one and he never pretended it was. Loving according to his standards can be crucifying. But he's telling us in the Sunday's Gospel that it's eternally worth it. He who said that we must love the Lord with all our strength meant it. All our strength. All our mind, heart, and soul too. Someone can object. I've never heard, Father, these things before. There must be some type of loophole. As long as I'm a good person, as long as I come to Mass each week, as long as I keep the commandments, as long as I pray, pay, and obey, I don't really have anything to worry about, right? In the Sunday's Gospel, there were many who similarly thought they had an in, only to be profoundly mistaken. They remained on the outside, knocking, trying to get in to no avail. We ate and drank with you, they cried. It wasn't enough. We heard you teaching in our streets. That wasn't sufficient either. To both, Jesus said, I do not know where you come from. St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives even more stunning examples. Lord, Lord, people cried out, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Jesus says, even to these he will declare, I never knew you. Jesus was indicating that a mere external relationship with him is not enough. It's not enough just to hear his words. It's not enough to eat and drink with Jesus in the Last Supper in which we participate in the Mass. It's not enough to mention his name to a few others or even to do a few good deeds in his name. In each of these things, Jesus says that we can still remain a stranger to him, someone unknown. After all, Judas ate and drank with Jesus. He heard his discourses. He was sent out by him to announce his kingdom and in his name cast out demons and work miracles. Yet he never really knew who the Lord was. 
He followed Jesus on the outside, not on the inside. Even though Jesus wanted it so badly, Judas never became his intimate friend, never became a real member of his family. And we know that Judas ultimately valued Jesus less than 30 pieces of silver. We have to do more than listen to Jesus. We have to put his words into action, even difficult words like we find in this Sunday's Gospel. We have to do more than eat and drink with him. We have to become whom we eat. We need to do more than announce his name and do some good deeds. We need to live by his name, Christian, and allow him to work through us. In short, we need to enter into intimate friendship and communion. To be a faithful Christian means to agonize, to enter into this communion and follow Christ always. There's no point at which we can stop fighting to follow him and live off the interest of previous good years of discipleship. We're called to fight the good fight to struggle until the day we die. As Archbishop Sheen used to say, if we're not going uphill, we're sliding downhill. If we're not swimming against the current of the world toward Jesus, we'll be floating downstream over the falls. Jesus himself tells us, unless you pick up your cross each day and follow me, you can't be my disciple. In the midst of a culture that's constantly trying to water down our commitment to God, Christians who want to be faithful need to strive even harder to pick up the cross God gives us each day and unite ourselves to Christ on that cross. Christ himself is the gate to the sheepfold. And the reason why the gate is narrow is because it's the width of the cross. In the face of this challenge, Jesus doesn't leave us agonizing on our own with all our weaknesses, staring at the uphill narrow road. He gives himself to us to strengthen us in the inside so that we might finish the race and keep the faith. We can indeed do all things in him who strengthens us. He empowers us by his word. He bolsters us by the intimate friendship of prayer. He fortifies us by the awesome gift of Holy Communion so that united with him we might follow him step by step, entering into him who is the narrow gate. If we do this, then at the end of our earthly life, when we appear before the gates of the eternal Jerusalem and ask, Lord, Lord, open to us, we will see him smile, open wide the gates, call us by name and say, I do know you. Come on in, enter into the kingdom prepared for you since the beginning of time. Let's prepare ourselves for this Sunday's eternally consequential conversation. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 